Across the distant reaches of the Milky Way, past the Helux Nebula, circling the edge of a protostar, a red-hot bar sits in the shadow of a cold asteroid. This is Sci-Fi and Tonic. Pull up a seat and order a drink with your hosts, Tan Tuncha and Don Dimish. Everybody, this is the Void Armada team. Where first episode of Sci-Fi and Tonic, we're just chatting about uh, science fiction. Uh, we're joined by Tan, who's co-hosting the space. Dawn, who uh, is on the Void Armada team, and Chip, the community manager for Void Armada. Together, the three of them make up the Void Armada team. I'm Toby Kurtz. I'm running social media. For Void Armada, I'm part of the Modern People team, uh, who you might know from uh, Portal Heads. And uh, so, yeah, we're just going to be chatting and chilling, pour yourself a drink, and we're going to be talking about sci-fi. I think, Ton, you wanted to kick it off with the the god of sci-fi, the human god of sci-fi, Isaac Asimov. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) The beginning and the end of of sci-fi right now. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, it is really fresh because we have the series, the Apple series. So uh, it is um, relevant again. It was it was always relevant, I suppose, the Foundation series. So just like a quick info uh, about the series, I, I think it brings an inter- interesting perspective into uh, Isaac Asimov's mind state because he wrote the first book, The Foundation, on 1951, which is like six years after the end of the World War II. So it's, it's surprisingly, uh, it's been like 71 years, you know, amazing. Uh, like he thought of all of these things back then. Uh, I mean, you can, you can, I think throughout the series, you can feel it a little bit because they're like tapes, you know, obviously he, he couldn't foresee things like digital media or whatever. So, you know, there, there, you have like this whole galaxy and like spaceships going one side of the galaxy to the other, but you have tapes. So, um, which is hilarious when you're reading it now. Um, but I think, uh, but the thing is he, the, the, the whole series is um, six books. Uh, sorry, seven books actually. And he wrote the prequels much later. So the first one, Foundation, is 1951. The next one is Foundation and Empire. Second Foundation, Foundation's Edge, and Foundation and Earth. So he wrote, and then he wrote Prelude to Foundation and Forward to Foundation after that. So, and the whole series, about, I'm not going to, going to spoil the books or, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail about the books because if, I mean, if, uh, I mean, I want this to be relevant for people who haven't read the books or watched the series either. But, uh, but the basic gist is that there is a guy called Harry Seldon, and he comes up with a concept called uh, psychohistory, um, which is an amazing concept because it is basically uh, what it means is that you can basically predict the future by looking at the past using mathematics. So this is an amazing thing. So, so the, the whole premise is actually kind of based on this. But at the end of the day, the whole series is kind of a space adventure as well. So um, it's just, I think, this is the kind of thing that kickstarts the story. 
And and the series, uh, I loved it. Uh, I think it is visually stunning. It is kind of slow moving. It's quite quite slow paced, I suppose. Um, and they, I think one thing I really liked about the show, like how they added these a lot of nice stuff. Uh, for instance, um, uh, the genetic line of the emperor uh, isn't something that's in the books. So it, they actually made it up for the series. And it just brings an amazing perspective to the story. So it is pretty interesting. Um, and and obviously some, they changed the, like, the gender and this... Um, and uh, they, actually, a lot of characters' genders are changed. Like Salvor Hardin is actually a man. And I was actually thinking about this uh, because it is pretty normal. He wrote this in like in the 50s. So all of his characters, the main characters are all males. You, know? you, don't, you don't have like strong female characters at all, all throughout the series. And if you go back to writers who, who like wrote their first book in like 60s, you'll see a similar thing. Like even Ursula L. Guin, uh, like um, she uh, is a female science science fiction writer. Uh, her main characters were males at the beginning, and then like in the um, uh, the Wizard of Earth C series, uh, she wrote the book Tehanu, where you had a female uh, protagonist. So uh, it is it is kind of it would be unusual to have a female front character at the time, I suppose. Uh, it's not there. Usually, the main, main characters are male in these stories. But I think, uh, anyhow, I want to actually go on to discuss um, this thing—the idea of psychohistory, for instance—because it is it is relevant now. I kind of looked into it, like it, like if there is some kind of uh, really science to it that you can predict the future using math, and I actually found. Like university lectures, like a professor like teaching students, and they recorded it. And he actually talks about uh, psychohistory in the sense of economics, so um, which I found interesting. And and this is quite relevant also with what we are doing here, like with the Void Armada. This is an NFT project, and and the crypto. We know everyone knows how you know volatile it is, and we're always every day looking at that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the science is going to go up or go down. Actually, I want to start with discussion with that. You know, do you think one day is it going to be possible, like, to predict not future but predict the economy? You know, where it's going to go. Is it? I wonder if it's going to be possible. What do you think, guys? Yeah. Prediction maybe the it's the tough toughest word I think for this uh, uh, section because. Uh, uh, prediction is too uh, too unpredictable <laughs> for the future. Uh, so many data, yeah, so many parameters, so many hyperparameters uh, in the world. Uh, also in the crypto, uh, everybody talking about the predicting the best price or the best move uh, in the time. But uh, in history and psycho, uh, uh, what is the word, Tan? Uh, uh, Psychohistory. Yes, yeah, psychohistory. Yes, yeah, psychohistory is is a statistical uh, thing. I think uh, it's, it's it's just a blueprint of uh, all the science fictions. So, uh, in my opinion, uh, really, it's just a, a statistical thing. Uh, and Asimov uh, 
at that times uh, he blueprints and drafts all the <laughs> sci-fi uh, skeleton you know uh, I think it's hard to predict uh, the future with the data or the uh, maybe you could predict uh, so many minor things uh, in the story or maybe uh, in life in in a moment maybe but you couldn't predict all the uh, things uh, in just a bucket uh, i think it is like that <laughs> i agree i agree you yeah, know by the way so one thing to mention about psychohistory is that harry selden mentions like it's never 100% so it, yeah, it's sure. kind of similar in economics, right? You know, I mean, you know mm-hmm. this much better than I do because you've been <laughs> in, in crypto for a long time. So when you're looking at predictions like all those like indicators, you know, in trade view, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, oh, they're like I was so surprised when I first saw it that there is so many. I thought there were like a bunch of them, uh, like four or five of them, and there were like hundreds of them. Actually, probably they're like derived from each other. You know, they're like, very similar with you know sure, few alterations, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's all uh, based on the uh, stories trading uh, uh, mechanics uh, and it evolves, uh, evolves periodically and everybody uh, generating new one, you know, all the uh, uh, golden ratios and all the other stuff. Uh, everything is works in a minor time. It, it everything works in a minor time, but in the total time, when you're looking at the total, uh, it's not uh, great. So it's like that in the psycho history. Um, maybe millions of data. <laughs> uh, if we uh, give millions of data to the uh, algorithm, and then it uh, predicts some things, but. Uh, it's not possibly worse, <laughs> and it might be burnout all, all the future. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. That's right. And and yeah. by the way, of course, when Harry Seldon talks about or Isaac Asimov talks about psychohistory, uh-huh. one important thing that underlined is that it only predicts uh, humans and mass. So that means that you know yeah. uh, like in, it doesn't predict what's like tiny individuals do you know it just it, it mm-hmm. will predict the future i mean you can say probably uh anything like psychohistory today probably will not <laughs> predict something like oh next week uh, phantom's gonna infinitely go up or like 90 percent gonna great, go up <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome, but uh, I think it's going to say, "Oh, in ten years' time, uh, crypto will be the norm." You know, you can, <laughs> you can possibly maybe it will be in the banks, and it's going to be the actual, the only way to trend, you know, yeah. make transaction, whatever. So this is something that you can predict. Actually, this prediction thing uh, came up recently uh, in, in COVID because. Um, you know about Bill Gates thing that he he said oh in the next few years the worst thing that's expecting humanity is an outbreak you know and then mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then people said oh he knew it it's just come on that's that's Bill Gates I mean he's a genius first of all and his whole business is based on trying to predict what the next you know what the future is going to be especially technology wise right I mean that's what he does you know and, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. It's not surprising <laughs> that he predicted that because that's what he did. He, you know, at the time he predicted people would need these PCs at home, which which was mm-hmm. a preposterous idea at the time, by the way. 
you know, why do you need this huge machine in the in the house? You know, it's completely useless. So yeah, it was yeah, the same right. thing with, with with Apple. I mean, the the first Apple <laughs> computer was people thought that was oh you can draw on it. You know, it's like oh that's it. <laughs> I can just draw lines. You know, <laughs> what is it good for? It's, it's a just, drawing machine. <laughs> Yeah, it's a drawing machine. It's a glorified drawing machine. You know? Yeah, I can draw on a paper. Why do I need that? So, um, it's it's I think hilarious and and obviously writers like Isaac Asimov and uh, Arthur C. Clarke they 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 also tried to predict uh, the future themselves. Like Arthur C. Clarke especially made a lot of predictions. He actually predicted the uh, communication satellites. Um, he's, he's, you know, credited with that, uh, but he also made so many wrong predictions. Uh, I'll tell you one of them. I'm not going to bore you with them, but one of them is that I found it really hilarious. He said that humans will tra- train animals and animals become, will become our servants, like bringing you a drink or something. So we made that prediction. <laughs> By the way, there was a request um, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, Toby, did you? Yeah. Yeah, okay, BC cool. Dang, uh, I invited BC Dang up to the stage. How you doing? Hey, I'm good, man. How you guys doing? Hey, I, yeah, I had something to add to that uh, in a sense of like cycle prediction. Um, I mean, there, you, it's already happening with glass nodes, right? With Bitcoin and following on metrics uh, calculations, kind of basically yeah. um, figuring out when the next cycle is. And so like, Crypto is so young. I mean, five years ago to now, there's so many projects that went dead, right? So there's no really mm-hmm. um, le- like you know um, legacy crypto that can give us that, um, that 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 prediction yet. But Bitcoin is the only one because the history of it is just you know we have all the data on it. But if you, you're talking about yeah, maybe yeah. 50 years, right? You're taking all the crypto data for all maybe top 10, 15 projects that have lasted for 50 years. All that data compared to like as well as the last two hundred years in you know how the economy is built with the stock market, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then having AI develop where it can track world economy from different countries and states and issues that are going on. I think at that point you're gonna you're gonna be able to have a higher prediction of like you know what the future holds in a sense of like once crypto's mainstream, once crypto has an economy along with you yeah. know traditional you know um, central econ- um, banking system as well. By that time, I think you're going to get to a point where you're able to actually see how to predict, you know, which country is going to grow, which is not, because then all that data is streaming online, and you're going to be able to cipher mm-hmm. all that down. So I, I think it definitely is with technology as it as it grows, that definitely is going to be available. I think this is an awesome point. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah you're. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're I'll, right. I'll yeah. My two cents. <laughs> putting into it. That's all. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah, AI predictions uh, just for the large scale on the trading or any mathematical uh, zone. You know, uh, if you want to predict uh, in a day scale or t- uh, hour scale, it's impossible. And also all the uh, big bots, you know, on the trading market or economy, uh, every time they want to catch you uh, in the uh, bad line uh, and you, they want to... Uh, get all your <laughs> money from your wallet. Uh, so the bots always trying to do uh, uh, different kind of things. And also they are uh, generating the future data because uh, they're always uh, managing the market like this, uh, all the uh, old big miners also. 
so uh, maybe they didn't know they don't know uh, what they are doing but they are also uh, uh, writing their data on the future uh, so all the predictions uh, every time every day uh, gets changing uh, and the, it will be changed all the time uh, i think uh, you you yeah you're uh, on a, a great uh, point yeah and and i mean obviously there are things that we will never be able to predict predict that's going to affect the, the world economy like a war just like right now like, you know how with the you yeah. know russia ukrainian war where obviously they, these things all affect um, the economy as well, and we don't even know how how it's going to go on and how it's going to how it's going to uh, you know be in terms of you know I think I think in general um, if you if you look at for instance COVID it was totally unexpected I mean <laughs> yeah um, Bill Gates knew I mean he he, he didn't know he didn't know by the way he he said the next big danger is this and he he was yeah. right and anybody could have also said that you know it's not he didn't. He didn't think that it could happen like this year, but actually, I'm thinking about it. Sometimes it, it works the other way around. Like COVID was beneficial for crypto, in my opinion, because I think people uh, kept relying uh, online applications more and more, and and borders have become thinner in a way because now it's much easier to work from home and fr- from a distance. So. You don't you don't need to be in the same room with people to to bring out a project like this. I mean, I think a lot of NFT projects are like that as well. But if you look at Void Armada, I mean, Don and I are close. I mean, we live close, but everybody else is just all around the world, and we can work just fine. This affects crypto in a positive way because it's a really really practical option. Uh, but in general, I think it is difficult to predict. Uh, human nature that's the problem i think i think we can definitely we mm-hmm. can use big data to predict maybe general outcomes you know rough uh, outcomes yeah you could say in 20 years time this might happen but yeah. it is very difficult to predict human nature and that that's that's the yeah. that's the tricky part and that is why i think foundation series is in the realm has to remain in the realm of science fiction but not science and um, while on the subject, uh, there are some other things I want to explore about foundation as well. You know, not just the uh, psychohistory part, but but having a galactic empire. So this this is pretty interesting because the way uh, the way Isaac Asimov found out about this idea was um, he actually read Edward Gibbons' History of Decline and Fall of Roman Empire, which is a fantastic book. So. Um, and I recently finished a podcast about Roman history, history of Rome, uh, until the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And uh, it's just amazing. And now I can, I can somehow see his point of view. So he basically imagined, you know, a galactic empire because it's sci-fi. So it has to be galactic empire, which is very relevant to us because well, Armada also has a galactic empire called Sol Imperium, right? So, yeah. And our... I think primary influence was definitely foundation. I mean, you can also uh, name Star Wars. You know, there was a galactic empire there, uh, an evil one. <laughs> uh, you know, it was a republic that turns to an empire. But um, but this is an again an interesting subject. You know, I sometimes think to myself, 
of how you know how it could be possible so or does it even make sense to to go to the stars is it economically viable in that sort of sense because if it's too expensive what's the point because everything you do i mean humans do in general you have to somehow profit from it right even wars are profitable so um if this is not going to be profitable no one's going to pay you know no government is going to pay you know for something that will take you to the stars unless there is unless a really easy way is found out you know that makes it a breeze uh, which is tricky, actually. I didn't want to go into this subject today because um, this is the subject of FTL, actually, faster than light travel. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's a whole different thing. Um, but let's say, for the time being, that let's say we found out a faster way to travel between stars, a quick way. Uh, by the way, in Void Armada, uh, the technique we're using is called jump drive. Again, it's sort of inspired from, I say, foundation a little bit, because I think that's the one that kind of makes sense to me. I mean, because jump drive is basically something like opening a um, wormhole yourself. It's actually a really mm-hmm. quick way to travel. So there is no travel time, actually. You're like creating a hole in the fabric of space and just going outside <laughs> the other, other, other side, no matter the distance. So, so there is no time to travel. So it's kind of... To me, I mean, a lot of scientists assume at the moment that Alcubierre drive, which is the warp drive, you know, can make sense in a way. I mean, it's mathematically, it's working. But I think there, there are lots of problems in uh, warp drive because mm-hmm. when you are somehow going faster than light, even if you're moving the space, I mean, in warp drive, basically, you stand still, actually, the space moves because space itself can move faster than light but nothing in space can. So that's the premise of uh, warp drive. So there is actually, there is still some kind of movement, but you're not moving. You're standing still, kind of. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, probably you cannot stand still in space. There is no such a thing. I mean, relative to what? That's the question. The problem with that is the time, you know, it's just that is what's left out so much. So it's just going, somehow going faster than speed of light messes up time. So you're basically going to go back in time. So it's, it's really weird. I kind of feel that the jump drive idea is kind of, kind of makes more sense to me. It's also mathematically possible, very difficult to do, maybe even impossible <laughs> actually to do <laughs> because the energy is required to open a wormhole is like, like limitless kind of thing. So, <laughs> you know, the, the energy of the universe, whole universe itself kind of thing, unless we find an easier way to do it but still suppose that we um uh figured out a way to travel faster and like the stars are within our reach uh, obviously without that i don't think there is much sense in going out and like uh, uh colonizing worlds it's just it's economically definitely not viable it doesn't make sense but if you can go fast if you can go like instantly i wonder if we do it, because humans are, they like expansion. I wonder if we do it, you know, go ahead, I mean, go ahead and colonize the worlds. What do you think? There's there's so much that needs to happen. Uh, I know that there are plans right now to, like, set up a small colony on the moon that they've, like, found where water sources are and stuff like that to actually uh, get, like, a colony up there. I just don't know 
like so much has to happen before between now and then. I don't know if we will ever like actually see it in our lifetime, you know? Um, I mean, that, that can make sense because uh, setting up a colony on the moon uh, will be like, a, it will open up easy travel within the solar system with the technology we have. Because the problem with space travel is like getting off Earth, 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 you know, 1G <laughs> uh, gravity. It's just gravity, you know, you don't want to be near a gravity well. So everything in, in, in the sense, uh, in that sort of sense, everything becomes kind of much easier on the moon. So basically, you can use the moon as like a stop, pit stop. Because as you know, when you're launching rockets, you're carrying your own fuel. So if you can fuel up on the way, then, um, you know, if you carry, then you'll be much lighter and you can get much, you know, bigger payloads into the space, which will make it easier to colonize uh, the other planets like Mars. So uh, I think that kind of uh, moon base makes a lot of sense. You can put a telescope there, like a space telescope, because basically when you're on the, on the moon, you're in space because <laughs> there's no atmosphere. There you go. You're just like actually standing in space. So... Um, and as you said, Toby, that's right. There is, there is enough water, I think, to sustain a colony there. Uh, it will be difficult in low gravity. I think that's sort of a pain. Um, the other issue with the moon, by the way, is the moon dust. Because it's this, if you look at it, if, if you've seen the pictures of moon dust with a, you know, taken with microscope, it looks like this little uh, thorn, you know, it's just really spiky. It's this horrible thing. It sticks on you. It will get into your spacesuit. It will get into the machines. It will break everything. And I, I was watching this sci-fi uh, show uh, on, on YouTube, and one of the listeners asked a great question. They said, oh, you know, I think it would be really wise to build a space, you know, like landing platform on the moon. Uh, you have to, because the problem is if you keep landing into the same place over and over on the moon, you will lift up so much moon dust and it will go into the space, start orbiting the moon, and it will, at some point, it will become literally impossible to land a vehicle to the moon because you'll be bombarded with these little particles. Really fast going, like, you know, thousands of miles per hour going particles that will actually destroy your ship. So <laughs> you must not lift moon dust. That's the thing. You, they, you know, as soon as, as soon as a, the first colony is kind of, you know, starts to get set up. They need to, the first thing they need to build is a landing platform without any moon dust on it. So you don't lift any. So moon dust is a nightmare, unfortunately. But um, I think expanding to solar system, I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, again, if we go back, we can connect these traces to, to our current economy. And uh, if, you, if you think about the, uh, the chip crises we have now, I mean, it's basically, you know, it's a logistical thing more like, but the world is running out of valuable materials. And I'm thinking like we all, I mean, we all threw out those, you know, GPUs, the graphics card that we're not using. We just binned them. We should have, we should have recycled them because we need those chips right now. And, you know, and I think uh, in the near future, this is a prediction, okay, in the near future, it will be against the law to throw out your electronic hardware. So the solution is in actually in, in space. Uh, there are so many asteroids that are just waiting to be mined. And uh, even with today's technology, I think, I think we can definitely undertake such a project. Uh, 
and and it, at some point we will have to because we will want to continue this this the technology we have right now we we want we will want to keep our standards you know we, we don't want to give up your technology you don't want to go back so we will have to do that and then based on the moon we'll make much more sense then and uh, one idea is to like actually grab the asteroids and bring into the orbit of the moon or or the earth and then like mine there so that's a good idea I think all of these things will be much easier in the future with automated systems. Like you'll send a spacecraft, it will just grab the asteroid and bring it back. Uh, so I think expanding into solar system makes a lot of sense. Also, we can do a lot of good science too. There are still, I think, amazing things to be found out, like the you know moons of Jupiter, Saturn. You know, there's like there could be even life there. You know, like underwater life in in the uh, you know. Um, oceans of of Europa or Enceladus so it will answer really fundamental questions for us are we alone or is it the only life because earth is the only you know life we know we don't know anywhere else so this is the only example so if we can find life under the oceans of Europa or Enceladus or even you know Titan maybe then it means that life is so common I mean, even if it's like in three, two places in one solar system and it developed like uh, originated separately, then it means life is a really common thing. Um, but I don't know if civilizations are. I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, this is also, I think, a really interesting discussion because um, um, I think, uh, you know, the ongoing question about is there life out there, is there civilizations out there, the Fermi paradox, you know. Oh, if there are aliens, where are they? You know, we cannot detect them, we can see them. I believe uh, the threshold from going from, you know, animal life and plant life to intelligent uh, beings is, is very, very, it's, I think there's a really low chance. If you think about the dinosaurs, right, if you think your arm length, the timeline, you know, the timeline of the dinosaurs, you know, that lived on 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 Earth, uh, the time of humans will be the tip of your nail. So we lived, Homo sapiens, we lived much much uh, shorter than the dinosaurs. So if you're an alien, if you come to Earth, if you just pick a random moment and land on the planet on Earth, you would say, oh, this planet belongs to the dinosaurs. You probably bump into them rather than us. Even this one shows that intelligence isn't necessary. It's not, I don't, I, you know, it's not a belief, but, you know, I don't think that intelligence is part of evolution. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be. You know, you don't, you don't start from single cell, go, you know, and then go to the land and become a bipedal creature and then get smart. You know, that, it doesn't work like that. Like that. I, think, I think us happening is because of a series of huge coincidences uh, that never should have happened. And also, I think having a large moon helps because that's the way a lot of creatures just went from being uh, amphibious to, you know, crawlers. So, because they had to go from one pond to the pond because of the, uh, the tidal effects of the moon. So, uh, having a large moon like this is also extremely rare. I think we are here thanks to the moon, thanks to Jupiter. Jupiter is also great for us because it's like 
it's capturing all those big asteroids, killer asteroids or comets that's going to destroy our civilization or life as we know it. So we're actually, we're extremely lucky to be here and to be in, you know, that we are smart. It's, it's so interesting too when you like break down like um, the idea of like intelligence and stuff and then we're like, we have these little devices in our hands that were originally conceived in like Star Trek and we're like communicating across space and time in our own little like planet structure. Like it all is like pretty, there's like so many layers of, of craziness of just existence, you know, even before you get to like the celestial bodies. Uh, definitely. I mean, um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all stardust, right? <laughs> we're, 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 um, uh, we're born in the, in the heart of a star and then it exploded and created all these, you know, valuable materials like gold and like, uh, silicon and whatever. And then we happened. So, you know, by the way, when I was thinking of the aliens, I'm not going to spoil them here, the Gons. So basically Gons are the alien, uh, creatures in, in Void Armada universe. So, uh, the first time I was thinking about them, I thought, mm, they should be definitely aquatic creatures. Because I believe, you know, because of this, this is because of the thing I just said, like having a large moon. Because if you don't have, if you don't have a large moon, uh, if you don't have these tides, you know, then, then it will be rotted, then you'll probably end up being a water planet. So I think water planets and planets like uh, Europe and Enceladus, they're actually more common, I believe. So if you're, gonna, if you're going to create, you know, alien species, I think it, should, it, it is most likely to be like aquatic creatures somehow. And, you know, they could maybe somehow be intelligent. And obviously sci-fi have, has, you know, delved into this a lot. But, but it's, it's difficult because trying to tell a story with aquatic creatures, it's kind of difficult. We, wanna, we want aliens that, that are like, like us, you know. By the way, in Foundation series, there are no aliens. Uh, this is not a um, spoiler. It's a general thing. I mean, you, when you start the book, you realize you know, there's no talk about any kind of aliens. So it's like an empty universe um, just, just with humans, and, um, which, which is very likely, by the way. I mean, we, we might even be the only intelligent species in the, in the Milky Way galaxy. So, so that's, that, that was... Everyone's, everyone's getting existential dread from this conversation. Like the universe is so vast, and I'm just a guy on a rock. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's what it is. Um, and <laughs> I think when you realize that, you become more humble, and maybe you start enjoying life more. Well, there's um, I always mispronounce the name. It's like Kirk Kirkstat or whatever on YouTube. They do like animated. Yeah, uh, yeah, I watch them all the time. Videos. Yeah, Kyrgyzstat or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. They um, they did one that was even just about the way that human beings calculate our own time, and like from the, roughly time of when humans started to conform into stations, cities, plant crops to what we would consider like civilized society. That's about like ten thousand years, but because we have we break up time into BC and AD. Then we have this like really strange conception of the newness of our own existence. Like to say that it's only the year 2022 when in reality, human beings have been around for like 10,000 years and we don't 
calculate that weight of history of that weight of existence into our daily sort of um, the way that we go about our day. And would it be different if we were instead in the year 10,022, um, we understood like all the history that came before us and we were thinking about all of humanity that has existed before us you know that's right by the way that time frame uh, that 10,000 years is is actually not homo sapiens it's it's i think the time we started like settling down and that is one of the reasons that actually maybe the only reason that time frame came out is because of gobekli tepe which is you know as probably the listeners everyone knows is actually the site in Urfa, in Turkey, in southern Turkey. So Göbekli Tepe actually means uh, belly um, hill. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what it means. That's the exact translation. They, because it look, look like these cute bellies, you know. When they found Göbekli Tepe, they realized that those things are like, they look like kind of a ritualistic place. Or it could be uh, also, they could also be kind of watches in a way, kind of astronomical devices somehow. Because, you know, it reminds uh, me a lot of, of um, Stone Edge, uh, those round rocks. So maybe it's kind of, uh, uh, it's maybe used for astronomy, uh, not, for, not for the hell of it, because astronomy, as soon as people found about astronomy, it just became extremely useful because now you can predict, you know, like um, the, the seasons, you can predict like uh, when, when the rivers will, rivers will overflow and then, you know, so it, uh, it made a lot of sense. So probably maybe it's that, or maybe they were like, you know, uh, religious places. So that really puzzled people because the scientists, because uh, the problem is, I think the idea, the general idea was first people settled down and then religion came. So, but the problem with Göbekli Tepe is that all those, all those um, monuments, they're actually, they're not, for living spaces, you, there there are no living places. There is no city. Um, so you don't see any kind of you know like the, you don't see any remains of uh, uh, big structures like government you know houses or something, city halls, whatever. Uh, it's just those things. So which is surprising. So it is. I think people at the time were still kind of nomadic, but they probably kept coming to this place maybe for pilgrimage. Or again, maybe it was like a central spot for people to come and like look at the stars and predict what's going to happen to their crops and, and the rivers, whatever. Uh, and and then, then they went back. So 10,000 years is the time actually we're supposed to have settled down. That's kind of the beginning of the first civilization, the Gobekli Tepe civilization. So, so here's the interesting thing. That puzzles me. Humans, Homo sapiens, are actually around for two hundred thousand years. So the question is, why now? I mean, if you take, if you go back in time, take a human being from two hundred thousand years ago, like you take a baby, you know, you go there, you go to someone's cave, you snatch their baby, you bring it back to twenty first century, you you educate them like we do, and then it will just turn out to be uh, an NFT artist, you know, <laughs> just. <laughs> It will, it will sh surely be an NFT artist. So, uh, or a, or a so YouTuber. You're, so you're advocating for a like of Encino Man, where he becomes a crypto artist at the end, right? Yeah. 
that, that's that is the natural evolution. I think that's where we're going. You know, from right. from one cell creatures, you know, to lizards, and you know, and then to NFT artists. I think that's <laughs> that's where we're going. So, how how you doing, BC Dang? You want to jump yeah. in here? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, go ahead. One thing about that is that. Um, it also depends on how the evolution of our brain and our DNA is because through every generation, right, um, more and more we, we got bigger brain development. So if you went back to the, that time period and you took that, that baby to here, it may not have that much brain power inputting to be able to understand, right? Because <clears throat> with our DNA and genetics, every time we pass it down to our next sibling and sibling, um, we get a little bit more of that evolution process. So it's kind of like, I mean, if you can actually sit and watch through 200,000 years, the slow process, I mean, the development from where we came to where we are now is pretty advanced in the sense that we are able to have a consciousness to make, you know, critical thinking decisions. So it's, it's kind of like, it's interesting what you're bringing up because it's really unique how you're taking this almost like scientific approach and then kind of coming into it and seeing like how at 10,000 years from now, how we're going to evolve. And I only see things that we're just going to be people with much bigger brains and bigger, bigger heads. <laughs> That's interesting because that, that is one of the predictions. But Toby, go ahead first. You were going to say something. Sorry. No, I was just going to say um, this Sci-Fi and Tonic with Void Armada. We're uh, talking with Ton, Dawn, Chippy, who are the Void Armada team. Um, if any of you would like to step up and contribute to the conversation, we'd love to have you. We're talking sci-fi, obviously. We're talking existential dread, the size of the universe and compared to the small size of our brains <laughs> so uh yeah raise a hand if you want to come chat with us and thanks for joining us um but yeah you just said <laughs> you just you just said it yeah the size of our brains definitely um actually this this was a thing like the future humans having like larger heads and larger brains like bigger eyes one thing you can tell when you look at like old pictures, this is this is actually a different subject, by the way. I was thinking about this. When you look at like the oldest pictures of humans when, when you had, like people's eyes are like, I think, smaller. So we have people with bigger eyes and bigger heads right now. I think I think you can kind of see it, but I'm not sure. There is no scientific base to that. So but the thing you said uh is sort of right because um bringing a two hundred year old baby <laughs> today it could be tricky, but scientists say that actually uh, we finished our evolution then. You know, the brain was actually uh, kind of the same. So, I mean, it's hard to say. You know, maybe you're right. Maybe uh, it will have this kind of – maybe we d during this time, although the brain is similar, maybe there are like subtle changes, really subtle changes that that makes us easier to adapt to technology or adapt to, you know, sort of modern life. This is one of the, one of, you know, the reason what I was thinking that is uh, I bought my first car like six months ago. So while I was driving fast, I, I thought to myself, how are we wired to this? You know, in what point in our evolution that we can drive this thing, you know, this, because we don't go that fast, you know, we, we're not supposed to naturally. So how can we drive? How can we drive fast and be completely fine with it, you know? No, so for one thing is that, yeah, the brain has been, hasn't changed since then, but it's the communication within the brain that has been evolving and developed, right? And so if, you're, if, you, if you learn something new, 
um, that's like technology, like fire or building something or anything that's you know technically advanced, is passed on to the next generation. And you know those those, those they call it synapses um, communication. It grows within the brain, right? And I think that you know with how much has evolved. It could be possible that they can learn, but in the sense that, you know, through the evolution process, there's always a little imprint in that DNA, that genome. And I actually had a, I was developing a, 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 a graphic novel series based on genetic coding and DNA and saying that um, kind of similar to how uh, Prometheus is, is that, you know, we're descendants from a different uh, alien race but we're genetically cold, right? And, you know, we were talking about us being type zero civilization compared to like, you know, um, higher intelligence civilization that are type three or four that can actually travel from galaxies, harnessing black holes, harnessing energy from, you know, stars as, as they're traveling through interstellar space. And so my idea behind my graphic novel was that <clears throat> there came to be, you know, be one person who has reached a type one civilization thought process where the genetic, ge their genetic code is actually unlocked and they actually evolved into another stage human species. And then that, from that point on, was like the evolution of humans into like, you know, um, uh, entering into intergalactic um, war that's been going on for eons, you know, between like different galaxies and stuff. So, but kind of like, you know, that's why when I saw this project, like I jumped on right away because I was like, man, it's hitting on like, you know, all the stuff that I was trying to create, but, you know, didn't have the time. But it's, it's interesting to have all these ideas now and floating, especially in an early, early project like this, because then it can actually help evolve the story, you know, instead of being a static, it can actually be an, be an evolution of a story in, in the gaming process as well. So you're saying, just to make it clear, you're saying that it is in the genes, not, it's not a brain thing, right? Am I getting it right? Yeah, yeah. So basically, like, um, um, as you evolve, right, um, intelligence or anything um, is input into your, your, well, how I feel it is, is it's, it's evolved into your DNA. And so, like, with every, you know, every time, you know, you build, like, let's say, a per compared to, a, let's say, a person who is a natural, let's say, you know, physically bodybuilder, you know, that have spent hundreds of years passing his DNA down, his generation is going to be big, you know, like the Vikings or like, you know, anybody that like, you know, over, you know, over time has built that type of uh, physicality, that DNA. It's the same thing with someone who never done any type of physical activity. They won't have those predetermined, you know, um, you know, um, evolution that that's passed on to the next generation and you can see this in like you know animals um that have like quick generations you can watch like if there's one mutation or one change all of a sudden it's a new trait it's something that's given down and passed and you know you, that's when you know you can look at different species of animals that have the same ancestry but they're totally different in genetic makeup just because of one little trait and that changes over time and you know humans you know our generations are a lot longer so you know, it's harder to see it, but if you go back in history, you can start looking at, you know, um, the Mendelian traits of like how people were from different parts of the world and in areas and kind of kind of learn from that. But to me, it's always been about like the evolution of, pe of, of humans in the sense of, you know, mapping and imprinting in the, in the genetic code, which we technically pass down to our offsprings. By the way, while we're on the subject, uh, this is pretty interesting. Um, while we're on the subject, I want to actually recommend a book. This is actually a science book, not a science sci-fi book. It's called Origins, just that, very simple. Mm, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> uh, Lewis Dartnell. It's, it just explains how humans came to be in a way. And it's a page-turner, surprisingly. So it was pretty interesting. And one of the explanations about how 
we came to be as a, you know how we form civilization lies uh, to, according to him uh, is in the climate actually because apparently 10,000 20,000 years ago the last ice age uh, ended so and one scary thing about that by the way he says that it's going to come again so there there is there's an ice age waiting for us by the way anyway the point is that you know it, it is really fascinating to us because the first like people settled down where we are living right now in in Turkey in southern Turkey in in the Levant the uh, fertile crescent so uh, if you if you look at why uh, they were like like tens of uh, like I think 27 different species of like seeds there so it just made sense to settle there than everywhere else and also um, some other places too like obviously uh, Egypt near India as well uh, there were some points like that specific points but I think after the ice age I think it made more sense to settle down rather than being a nomadic you know le- you know leading a lom- nomadic kind of lifestyle so I think it's the climate. And I, I really found that explanation in, in this book, Origins book, uh, quite you know, satisfactory in a way. Because then why? I mean, if humans have been like this, I mean, you have a point, definitely. But why then? Why not now? Because the problem between 200,000 years and to 10,000 years, yeah, probably humans developed at the time. But that's a huge gap. You know, why, why not in the middle or why not like 100,000 years later, but just 10,000 years before? Because it's basically because of the climate. It just basically allowed, I think, settling down and it made sense to people to settle down and form a civilization. You know, again, this, I think, shows that even if you have intelligent species on a planet, they don't necessarily turn into civilizations. You know, it's not maybe inevitable direction that goes to civilization and spacefaring civilization. And humans, in history, humans have known to go back, by the way. You know, we have, we have advanced, and then, and then Bronze Age collapse happened, and we went back like 3,000 years. <laughs> you know, like the fall of Roman Empire we just mentioned, you know. It's just, again, I think we went back a lot. We lost a lot, a lot there. So you don't turn into a spacefaring civilization uh, necessarily. You can go on living like a tribal lifestyle. A good example would be, I think, Australia, the aboriginals. To me, it's fascinating because they invented astronomy like 10,000 years before the Greeks. It's really fascinating to me that they never formed a civilization. So this shows, and they were, before the Europeans came came there, they were completely uh, disconnected from the rest of the world. And why didn't they form a civilization? Why didn't they settle down? Why did they keep living like nomads? Again, the answer lies in the climate. So it's like a huge roll of dice that we are here. And I think we should, as Toby said, you know, we should realize how insignificant that is. You know, we just should be grateful that we even exist, I think. Uh, because it's just a, like, a, it's a, like a series of amazing coincidences that that happened so you you know even if you're intelligent you don't need to form a civilization it's not necessary for your survival apparently than the more originals would have done it well you uh you mentioned 
uh, like slight alterations in history. And I, I uh, there's a science fiction book like that. I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it also is Asimov, isn't it? It was like about um, the this like sort of time organization where they live outside of regular time, and they'll pop in to like. Uh, one of the examples is like someone who uh, goes to a meeting and their book gets picked up and their book goes on to start a war in the year like like three or four hundred years later. So they go and they uh, the time police go in and like alter something slightly so that he misses his meeting. The book doesn't get published. The war is averted and uh, life goes on. This reminds me of the TV series Loki <laughs> a little bit. Right. Did you see those? Oh, yeah. I liked Loki a lot. I liked Loki a whole lot. Yeah. And, you know, the time police and everything. The um, I love the idea of, have, of ha- having a uh, that kind of a time. What is that called? Um, like holy, right? Holy timeline kind of thing. So you must not change the timeline. By the way, I haven't read the book you said. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to have to look it up. There's like a couple books that I read a long, long time ago and... They just live in my brain now and float around, and sometimes I'll grab a hold of one, and I can't totally remember the title or where or when I read it, but that's one of them. Uh, hey, hey, Meeps, I saw that you requested to be a speaker. You want to come up and join this conversation, talk about some time travel? Yo, Yo hey, um, I, I joined in probably about, I don't know, five, ten minutes ago or so. Um, what, what is the uh, conversation on? Because uh, I heard the bit about like civilization and the ten thousand year to you know two hundred thousand year you know sort of gap of history for humanity and sort of that quintessential question that we all should ask is like yo why did um, civilization pop up in like um, the the Middle East basically you know like why did it happen there and not elsewhere but yeah what what, what else the, the conversation about today. And yeah, actually, it was that. Uh, and one of the culprits we, we were mentioning were is the climate, because the climate was the most suitable there, and in, in the Levant, and in, in Egypt, and uh, and in India. But I mean, the oral, the general discussion is like: should the evolution lead to, or humankind should lead to a civilization? Do we need civilization? Like, I mean, we do right now. Mm-hmm. We cannot do it right now. Is it, is it baked in, basically, or is it inevitable in a way? Exactly. That was the conversation. So Word. one of the examples I was giving was the aboriginals. Like, uh, I mean, they didn't form a civilization. They didn't even settle down. They were completely disconnected from the rest of the world until the Europeans came. And they, they, were, they led, led a nomadic lifestyle. And they are humans, too. They even started using astronomy like 10,000 years before the Greeks. So they were not backwards people. You know, they had their science in a way uh, because they had to find their way onto that huge, you know, continent the, the, and the outback. But they never, did a for, they never did form a civilization. So the question is, is that essential? Is that the way to go? That's, that's an interesting sort of uh, solution for the Fermi paradox. I've seen, I mean, like, I, I'm, you know, I'm familiar with it, you know, with that idea of, like, if... The Drake equation, just to use one, you know, of many um, sort of estimates for life out there. Like, if the Drake equation is correct, then where where the hell are all the aliens, yo? Like, where, where are they at? Where, where they be? But um, personally, I kind of ascribe to the idea of the 
what do you call it, like the, the dark force theory that any sufficient alien, you know, uh, intelligence would have evolved to a point that they could like conceal themselves or hide themselves or otherwise be undetected. Um, but who, who knows, honestly, like when you really kind of get down to it, because we're talking, you know, quite frankly about like unknown, unknown states of reality. And just by its, you know, by that basic premise is unfalsifiable. Like we can't falsify the claim that they're not there. So yeah, we're right back where we started sort of deal. Um, but I do recall seeing something a long time ago talking about, I forget if it was in Jordan or, um, where it was exactly, but there was somewhere where like they got hit with famine and it was like, it was a death blow for their society. Like they basically had, um, some ecological situation befall them where, you know, things were once like lush green or they were provided for. And then it was like they had a bad drought or the the crops died. And as a, as a society, they couldn't, you know, withstand that. But I do think it, it's a valid, um, almost sort of like a critique of society, if you will, or culture even. It's like, you know, it, it's just baked into the fabric or, you know, like, what are we doing? <laughs> um, it's, and it's kind of funny. It's one of those things where... Um, like a lot of technology, it just kind of operates in the background. And so you don't really be thinking about it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just, it's going along and society is kind of like one of those technologies. It's like, um, it's a shared mental state, uh, a, a shared mind, if you will, that we can all kind of tap into and agree upon and, you know, this shared consensus layer. And then we, we all benefit from it. But, um, you know, I've had the, I don't know if you want to call it a benefit, but I've had, you know, the benefit of seeing like society go away and then come back. You know, like I've seen acts of God, quote unquote, where, all right, now society shut down. None of the stuff that you were doing before is happening now. Um, and um, yeah, I, I've seen it kind of come and go. So in a way, I do see where when, every, you know, all bets are off and, you know, the chips are down, so to speak, um, people kind of go back to their, I don't know, their natural ways. But, um, you know, once things are singing and humming again, once things, everything's plugged up, society resumes. I think you touched so many bases there. By the way, it was great that you mentioned dark forest theory. Basically, it's uh, for people who don't know, it's, the, it's from a series called Three-Body Problem by Xi Jin Liu, a Chinese writer. Uh, I think those series, the three-book series, is, I think, one of the best science fiction books, one of the best science fiction series I've ever read, ever. So the Dark Forest theory, trying to explain the Fermi paradox, is, makes so much sense in a way. By the way, Stephen Hawking said, remember, said a similar thing that, uh, you know, like the colonization of Americas didn't go so well for the Indians. So if aliens came here, they'd do the same to us, assuming that aliens have human nature. So we don't know. Uh, it's a big assumption. But uh, but dark forest theory has makes more sense in a way because because of the distances. Because of the distances, we cannot healthily communicate with the aliens. Suppose even suppose they're like. 
like like in the books, suppose they're like alien civilization in the in, a, in the nearest star, like in Alpha Centauri, which is about four uh, light years away. So kind of close, you know, in our cosmic neighborhood, it's the closest one. Suppose they're like there. So we say hello, and they say, "Hey, how are you doing?" And it will it will be eight years, so <laughs> four years forward and back. So um, dark force theory states that this communication there will be. A, a chain of mistrust. I think he exactly uses these words, the chain of mistrust, you know, because you cannot communicate healthily, you know, it's just because of this distance and the delay, um, you'll always kind of suspect what's the other, other going to do, other side going to do. I mean, we, we had that similar thing here in the Cold War, you know, like this miscommunication between the countries, you know, almost went into a nuclear, like, uh, third World War, whatever. Uh, there were like so many instances like that. Uh, th- you know, if if you remember, there is one that they get this. Um, one Russian soldier sees this thing on the screen, like there is like a nuclear attack from America, which is actually a glitch in the system in the computer, and he decides not to act and not to tell his superiors, and he's today like a hero, and he he like you know, single-handedly stopped the, you know, nuclear holocaust. So, <laughs> and um, even even on Earth, uh, we had this kind of uh, mutual distrust. So, it's, it's kind of a valid explanation to Fermi paradox, by the way. Yeah. So, that, that is probably, you know, one of the reasons. But obviously, I mean, in, in sci-fi, you don't have that problem. Why? Because in sci-fi, the communication is instant. Like in Star Wars, you know, you communicate with a planet that's on the other side of the galaxy. You say, hey, I'm coming. And like, oh, yeah, you know, whatever. And then you just zoom there. Um, So, (laughs) by the way, one of the things, one of the communication methods that I've seen that was actually interesting was in Mass Effect games. They use something called um, entanglement device. I think it's not scientifically accurate, obviously, but it kind of makes sense because of quantum entanglement, you can have two different atoms behaving in the same way, however distant they are. So if they're entangled, if you separate them, let's say two hydrogen atoms, uh, when they're entangled, they start to spin in the, in the same speed, in the same direction. And then I- even if you, t- you know, take them apart, like light years away, it will not matter. They will be, once they're entangled, they will act the same. But I mean, I thought this would maybe help like long, long distance, commu- like instant communication. But, um, you know, like read some stuff about it and it says that it doesn't really work that way <laughs> that we imagine, uh, the entanglement. So, uh, so it's possibly not, uh, it will not be possible. But of course, we're assuming uh, that that happened because, again, if we go back to the beginning, at the beginning we talked about foundation and having a galactic empire which is something we have in Void Armada. There is a galactic empire, human empire called Sol Imperium. So in order to have an empire that you can control at the same time, then you need instant communication. Otherwise, it will not be possible. I think what would happen in that case is that suppose that you can travel really fast, right, somehow. And suppose that you decided to colonize the planets, uh, habitable planets in the solar system, because of this miscommunication, 
because of the distance of communication, basically those people will go there, they'll form their own culture, their language will change. You know, even if you try to communicate with them, <laughs> you, will, you will need to encode their language because they will be completely separated from humanity and they, their culture will change, everything will change. You know, maybe even how they look even might change. Uh, they might somehow evolve in, in, you know, in time uh, according to the place they, they've landed because not everywhere will be exactly like or higher percentage of oxygen or lower or maybe uh, less gravity, more gravity. So uh, they will eventually somehow change or, or they will change themselves and adapt. That's, the other. That's more likely, by the way, because evolution happens in billion years. So, so this is also an interesting concept that this, this communication thing, if you cannot communicate instantly, there is no galactic empire. Forget it. How are you going to <laughs> manage it? You know, or administer it. It's not. It's not going to be possible. You cannot tell them what to do. They won't. They won't even. They won't care. They say, "Oh no, we won't do that." <laughs> Have um, that was like one of the interesting things that I found about uh, the Expanse as like a sci-fi concept, where each like even just within the the space confines of our own solar system, that the societies were developing independently of each other. With independent regard of each other. I thought that was a real interesting take on the sci-fi genre around that communication aspect. But yeah, go ahead, BC Dang, I go off. <clears throat> hey, yeah, well, I had an idea because like it was interesting that you brought up about um, unable to communicate instantly because that does make sense. You know, um, as they're moving to another part of the galaxy, they'll evolve on their own. But have you ever thought about like creating like? Um, project the idea of like somehow harnessing photons and be able to encrypt photons to send messages so that it, it I, I mean it's a far idea but um you know photons they they act differently than light and sound waves and so you know maybe something that can actually you know go through dark space and everything um but somehow harness that power for communication i don't know it was just something that that was interesting to me that's all <laughs> Yeah, the problem is, I mean, I think, I think it's possible, but the problem is this speed of light. Because nothing can go faster than light, uh, still, whatever you do, you can, basically, the fastest way to communicate will be by laser anyway, by using photons. You know, it's not going to be radio, probably, because radio degenerates quickly in space because of the cosmic rays and everything. But light, you can send, if you, if you shine up very, very, very powerful laser to Alpha Centauri, you, you know, like a beacon, and then blink it like <laughs> Morse code, and then, then you can communicate, definitely. But it's not going to go for faster than light. Again, whatever you do, it's going to take four years to say hello to Alpha Centauri. So one way could be, maybe not photons, but there is this particles called tachyons. So tachyons are supposed to be particles that go faster than light. So scientists are still, there's actually scientists in the world looking for that. You know, maybe, maybe there is a particle that we don't know. Like you said, maybe it's kind of a photon kind of a thing that goes faster than speed of light. But so far, nothing came up. So it's likely that it's not going to happen in the way we think right now. Yeah. Well, another thing too is like, um, I mean, these are just like fantasy ideas and everything. But even like, with, you know, somehow 
um, let's say in, in this gameplay or, you know, being able to have the technology to, um, to harness dark matter, you know, because, you know, you, you're talking about scientists now saying that discovering, well, I think 30, 40 percent of, of the space is like, you know, dark matter that, you know, we can't see. But if somehow you have technology that can tap into that and then you can actually send signals through dark matter and then, you know, you can harness into that network and run your messages or, or anything. I mean, that, that's another something that. I've looked into, and it's just a you know like a fantasy idea. That's all. No, yeah, no worries, man. I was gonna say, isn't there the idea though that like um, with Hawking radiation that they've been able to prove basically that those messages or the radiation can propagate info beyond the event horizon somehow. Like it can it can escape the event horizon, you know, as it were. Um, so from like the photon standpoint, if you can get two or more photons to couple. Um, I mean, you know, th this is totally armchair understanding, but like, I thought the communication was supposed to be like instantaneous. Is there still like a limit of the speed of light? Um, because that's the very basis for like quantum cryptography where you have like two or more, um, you know, qubits or photons that are entangled. And then you, you know, you, you mimic the superposition of both across, you know, whatever, like whatever the distance is that's pretty cool actually uh it's interesting you mentioned black holes i think i think we'll i think uh science of black holes <laughs> will reveal a lot because a lot of the unknown i think lies uh in there because we cannot see inside an event horizon by the way one of the things you said the the if you think of um event horizon like like this line okay Okay, it's like a sphere around the black hole, but you're just at the edge of it, right? So there is something called a virtual particle. Basically, basically in space, um, these particles, they're just coming out of nowhere, and then they annihilate each other. So one of them is an, uh, like a proton or like an antiproton, which is an antimatter, actually. They just happen together, and then antimatter and matter just annihilate each other uh, with 100% energy output. So... What happens when this happens just on the side of uh, event horizon? You know, this particle happens to come to being at, at the right time, at the right place, at the side of the you know, event horizon. So they do not annihilate each other. What happens is one of them goes out, the other one goes in. Uh, and this keeps happening constantly. I think this is one of the reasons and and there's like a you know there's also huge energy there and and i think they're also entangled so <laughs> so I, you know i'm just by the way making it up now it's uh, in the realms of sci-fi maybe you can grab one of these particles that escaped the you know outside of the event horizon and somehow because they're entangled maybe you can communicate inside the black hole so so if somehow the black holes are connected then uh, you can create this network of <laughs> communication, you know, like um, uh, beacons in a way, centrals throughout the galaxy. So it's not like instant communication, but you communicate with the nearest black hole, but the communication inside the black holes are like instant. And then, <laughs> uh, and then the other person receives the information from the black hole, but you need to still account for the time. For, from the particle, uh, from the black hole to you. And you don't want to be near a black, black hole, by the way. Um, so you'll have robots or whatever spacecraft. You're not going to put humans there, definitely not. 
But this is pretty interesting, and I think it's an interesting concept that that it's it's I think I was good sci-fi. I, I was going to ask y'all too. Have y'all heard of a book called All Tomorrows? Uh, no. Oh man, go go like as ASAP as soon as you can. Go, go on to YouTube. There's a, a a very good reading of it. Um, I think the name of the channel is called Beware the Q, um, spelled Q U. But it is a great sort of like compendium of um, it's basically like a billion years in space and all these different species and aliens and all this sort of stuff that, um, you know, that's out there. And really, I don't know the way I kind of regard it, because there's not necessarily a full blown plot to it, but it's almost like an encyclopedia kind of thing, like a fictional encyclopedia but the way they break it down, it just it makes it very um, um, just very tangible as to what could be or, you know, just different things that could, that could happen and all this sort of stuff. And, man, I was captivated. I had never heard of of the author before. I just randomly saw it on a recommendation and started listening. And I listened all the way through on, on that book. It, it wasn't too long. It was like an hour and 30 or something, but it was good. It was solid. So I would absolutely recommend it because they talk about a lot of this stuff. Um, and that idea you were talking about this, like, yo, if you don't got instant communication, forget, you know, forget a federation, forget, you know, your imperial rule. It's not happening. Like, um, it's funny because, um, I don't know. It's just one of those those things that's always kind of it's like a fudge factor. It's, it's assumed that yeah, we can, we can do that, but then in reality, you know, there might be these like you were kind of indicating before. You might have to use like a, a a black hole almost as part of like a telephone network of the universe to send messages, you know, beyond the speed of light, or somehow manipulate these exotic you know particles, exotic states of matter in order to achieve really just a baseline of governance, you know, which is kind of crazy to think about. But yeah, all, all, all Tomorrows, man, definitely check that out. Okay, this is really interesting because um, uh, the writer is Turkish, <laughs> as we are, as Doan and I are. So I had no idea. I'm going to really quickly go into this. His name is um, Cevdet Mehmet Kösemen. Right, he, he's a Turkish writer. I'll definitely will check it out. Yeah, the the it's always good to find like a new book series or a new author that you haven't come across before. I personally have like a huge collection of books because I refuse to get rid of any books. And whenever I walk in a used bookstore, I'm like, I have to get at least five. Uh, so yeah, always love to grow my collection. There was a series. Uh, has anybody heard of the Electric Church series? A couple of years ago, like electric churches, these people who uh, mod their body with like nuclear power so that they essentially can live forever, and uh, it's about the, like the digitization of of human consciousness, but told through like a very uh, noir kind of uh, thing of like, this this detective sort of guy who has to figure out this mystery and. Uh, yeah, that was a good series. I was just thinking about that. By the way, Toby, you you really have an interesting taste. Um, uh, what was the movie you were talking about? Virtuosity? 
the 90s movie? <laughs> <laughs> What was that? <laughs> oh, man. That you love so much. <laughs> oh, no. I just, sometimes things just like <laughs> pop into my brain. And uh, so I was talking about it the other day. This Virtuosity is like a 1995 film with Russell Crowe and Denzel Washington. And it's that uh, this computer program downloads itself into like a body. And then, or no, I think it's something like they do a profile on like all of the serial killers of the world. And then oh, yeah. it becomes an AI to like try and predict <laughs> who's a serial killer. But then it gets downloaded into a body. And Denzel Washington <laughs> is like the cop that has to stop him. Yeah, I don't know if anyone remembers that that VHS classic. Man, um, movies in the 90s. Actors. <laughs> right. And you could get away with a lot. You can also think of, um, uh, what was that? The Sylvester Stallone movie where he gets frozen. Demolition Man. Yeah. Demolition yeah, Man, right. baby. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of like bizarre like hack sci-fi running around masquerading as uh it's like uh action adventure movies masquerading as sci-fi but uh yeah demolition man was like a, a another one from the 90s where they're like science is cool but like punching people in the face is cooler i'm just trying to remember the name of the film um i think it was war games it's like this stupid home pc that looks like an amstrad samstrad crap like commodore thing Suddenly yes. becoming <laughs> becoming um, conscious. It's, that's war games, right? But uh, well, war games, I thought war games was like they built like NORAD or whatever. They built a computer to control the nuclear arsenal, and then it gets out of control because it thinks that it's real. And only Matthew Broderick with his like home PC can stop nuclear <laughs> Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> and with and with the t that times, you know, I mean, and, and uh, internet freaking skills, <laughs> right? What was the one with the computer falling in love with the cello girl from like downstairs? You know, he what happens is the guy drinks. Uh, he, he sorry, he spills his drink all over the Commodore sixty four kind of thing, and then <laughs> it becomes conscious, and then it falls in love with the cellist. Because the computer hears somehow, uh, hears the her cello playing from downstairs, and then falls in love, like Electric Dreams or something like that. It came around the same time as War Games. You're right. War Games was something else. It was the that, Nora thing. That one I don't know. I have not. That one I don't. I'm, I'm familiar with. I know Weird Science, where they like create. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, woman. Yeah, the digital woman. <laughs> Who can like somehow <laughs> control space and time? And then I remember uh, Johnny Five too. What short circuit? Where he's like the war robot and he's running around. Yeah. Like, oh lord! Eating oh, eggs man. and stuff. <laughs> Batteries not included. You know. Uh, I found the name Electric Dreams. I was right. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, I just, don't I know just, that one. I went to Google and wrote "computer spill drink fall in love with cellist." That's what I wrote. And then Electric Dreams just came up on the top. Well, <laughs> That's the one. You, you, you know what's funny? It, there's a, a radio show from way back in the days. Like they, they call it the you know classic days of ra or the golden age radio. But uh, it's called uh, Quiet, Please. And there's an episode called The Pathetic Fallacy. Okay. And it's basically about a talking computer that falls in love with its creator. It's the 
it's just the funniest thing in the world because I think that episode was back in like the forties, you know, um, like, like the, the late forties at the latest sort of thing. So like, it's just weird that sometimes people even have these concepts, even when from, I don't know, like a practicality standpoint, you know, they, they don't even have reference material. Um, like the closest thing that we had to talking machines back then, um, was a device called the voter, uh, V O D E R the voter. And it was basically, it was like a, a, a old school, I, w- I don't want to call it a vocoder, but it was like a machine that could produce like vowel like sounds. And, you know, it would have this typist there or, you know, a person that would play this voter, but they demonstrated it at the world fair. And I don't know, it's funny to think what people would have thought about a computer literally or like a box talking to them before that was even viable as a concept, you know? Right. Well, uh, Void Armada, we just released a, a, a news that's about like the Void Armada world and Ton used a, uh, like an automated voice and it sounds really good. Like we actually went through and I think Ton like went through and, altered it so it sounded more digital it sounded more like a digital recording but when we were listening to it it sounded really good yeah it's uncannily too real uh this basically it's a text-to-speech engine i found on the internet actually uh, you can go ahead and just check out the same thing but uh so i i got it to read the news i mean if you look at on our twitter feed if you look at the news uh that is the voice and yeah, as Toby said, <laughs> but I, I made the film. I showed it uh, to our friends here at Modern People, you know, and what do you think? And they said, okay, the guy sounds too real. It's just like some guy from Washington, D.C. I mean, by the, he's using an English accent, but still, it's like a BBC News kind of thing. So it, it just became too real. So we had to <laughs> make it more artificial so that it kind of sounds more futuristic, like as if an AI is reading the news or something. So um, it doesn't feel too earthly. It's reading the news so well that we didn't really have to hire um, a voice artist for that. So, so that's, yeah, pretty interesting. It's come so far. And I know that uh, the advancements with, like, uh, Stephen Hawking, like, his, uh, his voice box and stuff is, like, sort of the start of that advancement in, like, the robot voice or the text-to-speech sort of thing. So it's interesting to see where we're at right now. But it's also like kind of a intense idea that you'll be able to mimic and copy other people's voices. Like we're stepping into some of these sci-fi realms ourselves. Like we've seen it in like science fiction and science fiction shows and stuff. We're gonna get to the point where we're starting to like blur the lines between what we perceive to be like a human attribute versus like a an animatronic or an automated attribute you know cool so i think uh we're good for this week uh thank you for all uh for listening all of you thanks so much you've been sipping sci-fi and tonic with your hosts tan tuncha and don demish brought to you by void armada a collection of science fiction digital collectibles for the latest news, episode info, and more, follow us on Twitter at void underscore armada. And tune in live on Twitter Spaces every Friday. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.